Uh, but today I want to talk uh, about a church's response in the midst of crisis. Now, if you're a lady here today, you might have showed up under the pretense of thinking, oh, wow, we're starting this new series called Women in the Bible. And uh, we, we are starting that, and uh, we are going to get around to that next weekend. Uh, and so a couple of things. Number one, if you're a mom in here, uh, come next week. We'd love to celebrate you for Mother's Day. And we're going to start a new series called Women in the Bible that we hope to start last week. But one of the things that I think, um, to, to just be completely honest with you, as a pastor, sometimes I miss it is the opportunity to speak into monumental occasions that are happening either on a national movement or even a local one. And uh, sometimes I so lock in to what I have had planned for six months or a year that I just kind of press on. And, and God just kind of convicted me on that, that uh, it's time to start talking about some things that are happening. We can postpone a series or two. And so uh, today I wanted to simply talk about how you and I respond in the midst of crisis. Now, obviously, you just saw a video just a second ago that uh, it demonstrates some of our response in the midst of crisis. And you saw people here uh, helping gather things and sort and distribute and do all those things. You saw some of the wreckage um, that is out throughout our county. But here's what I want you to know. As I think about crisis, I'm not simply speaking to one natural disaster event that's happening widespread across 51 miles. What I am speaking to are things that happen in our lives almost daily, if not weekly or monthly, in this room. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, spending a Wednesday morning with my accountability partner. I was talking about the book of Ezekiel. As, uh, that's where I'm going through right now. And uh, he's walking through the book of Hosea at the time. And we were talking about some of the, the suffering uh, that was was being uh, really shown through some of those times. And uh, obviously, suffering comes in, in, in for, lots of different forms. And as we were talking about that, he made a statement to me. He said, Brandon, I think that suffering has shaped you a lot as a person. And I responded back to him. And I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, I don't even know what to make of that statement. He goes, no. Like, he said, I'm I just think back about you and all of your suffering, and he goes, I think that's really developed you into the person that you are. You relate really well to lots of people. And he was talking, and he was kind of trying to be kind and kind of encourage me, and I looked him in the eye, and I was like, I don't even, I don't even know that I've suffered that much, man. And I said, I do believe that after a long winter of suffering, I said, it's always nice to see a spring day. And there's many of us in this room that you relate to that. It's kind of the old idea of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Isn't that awesome when they finally see a spring day, when the, uh, the trees begin to blossom and they begin to bloom and you, you hear the birds begin to sing again? And it's just this delighting harmony, this, this interesting thing that happens in our world in which you have gone from a cold, dark, stiffless winter to something that's being bred in you, a, a new delight, something alive and fresh and real. And that's what it looks like when you can come out of crisis. But he said, no, I want you to think about this. He goes, you've had a lot of really long winters. And I said, I don't think so, man. But he got me to start thinking about some things. And I don't think that today is an accident because a few weeks ago he got my, my mind to pondering and then here it is today, uh, a day that I get to share a little bit of with you. And I, I just want to go ahead and tell you, as we approach this message today, it's going to be a little bit different than some of my others, meaning a couple of different things. Number one is I'm going I'm to probably be a little bit vulnerable with you. So if I cry, it's not to pull your heartstrings because I really don't 
I don't want to cry, okay? So I'm going to try not to. Um, the second thing is, is this, is that I'm going to share some things based off of my experience. And so although I, I can't preach a message without God's word, it's going to be the textual evidence of where we're going. As we get to the end of it, I'm just going to give you four helpful things to do in crisis and two things that would not be so helpful. And it's going to become very practical. But before then, I want to share with you just kind of how Stone Point Church was born. Stone Point Church was born in the midst of crisis. Uh, about seven years ago this spring, matter of fact, it was March, um, I had a brother who uh, had a three-year-old son, and uh, his name was Marcus. Marcus had a lot of challenges uh, in, in his young life, and one day, uh, very surprisingly, he passed away. Uh, within 24 hours of, of his death, I had a very dear friend of mine who also experienced lots of tragedy in his life. And within 48 hours, I was doing two funeral services in this community in which I hadn't been back to in years. And I did them both in the same place within 48 hours. And I remember in my response of going back and forth, we were living in Dallas at the time, but we had a new three-week-old three three baby. And so Kelly had gone to her parents in Athens, and we were driving back and forth. But I remember one of those car conversations, one that I was just praying and seeking the Lord and His wisdom, one of those times where I feel like He spoke to me, and it's probably a, a one of about ten times that I can think that God has clearly spoken to me in such a way that I couldn't reveal what He wanted to do. And He said, Brandon, it's time for you to begin pastoring your family. And, and it was kind of one of those deals where like, God, I don't even know what you mean. Okay, I'm going to pastor my family. And that's exactly what I felt like it was. Through some difficult times, I was going to pastor family and friends. And God took that situation, though, and he birthed Stone Point Church a year later out of that. That, is the, that was the initial conversations. I can remember those so clearly. But then I started pondering. It wasn't just that Stone Point was born out of crisis, but I started thinking about just the crisis in my life. When I was 14 years old, my dad was uh, a head football coach in, in uh, Central Texas. It was home of the Brownwood Lions. And uh, Brown was a very prominent football community, and he had led them to their most successful tenure since 1981, their last state championship. The year later, uh, they went 3-7. and seven. When I was 14 years old, they fired my dad. And uh, I remember just the, working through that. And I, I would say that if I was to go to Regen tomorrow night and, and begin working through our ministry at 7 o'clock tomorrow evening, which you're invited to if you're a sinner, uh, I, I, would, I would imagine that that would be a big part of my life. And that would be a big part of me working through a lot of the challenges that I have, some of the resentment that I had towards people that I trusted, but also in, in some ways, even my lack of mercy or sometimes my cynicism as a pastor sometimes comes and is probably formed out of the betrayal that I experienced when I was 14. From, from there on, uh, I seemed to, to live a relatively peaceful life. Uh, lived in a Christian home. We moved here to Wills Point. We kind of made our home here. And uh, I graduated high school here, went to college, met my wife uh, in uh, 1999. The spring of 99, we began to date. We dated for two years, got married. I was 21 when we got married. She was 20. Matter of fact, uh, in a couple of weeks, we celebrate 15 years of being married together. And uh, it is by God's grace that I still have her, right? Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, celebrating with that. There she is right here, my encourager. Uh, but it, it, two years in our marriage, we had a house fire, lost almost everything we had. 
And um, I, I, it began to shape us as people as well. Shortly after that, my brother lost their first child, which a, a daughter named Macy. She was 10, years, or 10, 10 days old. And so the brother that I just shared about losing his three-year-old son a few years earlier had lost a baby when, when she was 10 days old. And so two, two things that were monumental. In the midst of that, uh, my dad also was the coach here. I had invested 14 seasons here, and uh, he lost his job here, uh, which also made me very cynical towards this community, made me very cynical towards uh, the people here. Didn't want to come back. I hated uh, the people. I hated the roads. I hated everything about Van Zandt County. Um, I, I hated the politics, and I still do. Um, and and I just, I, it was just one of those deals where I struggled a lot with those things. And God, God had to rebreathe into me a new life and a new hope and a new purpose for this community. Uh, in all of that, our house uh, in Dallas also was ransacked and broken into by thieves. Uh, as I just start kind of replaying all this. Um, Three, three years into starting Stone Point Church, I lost my best friend. Uh, he was one of the 13 that helped us start it uh, in a motorcycle accident just uh, outside of town. And then uh, about five and a half years into our church, my dad had a major brain accident uh, on a sideline of a football game, and that too has shaped me. And so I started just kind of rolling through these, and I go, man, he may be right. He may be on to something. I've I've experienced eight significant events in the last 13 years um, that I would say significant. That does not include both Kelly and I. Have, we've lost our grandparents uh, in that time. Uh, I've lost an uncle. Um, she has lost family. So we're just talking those that we feel like really impacted us closer to the core. And then here's what I realize: I'm not alone. And because you, you could, if you started evaluating, you would look at the crisis that you have in your life. And, and the question is, is this, is not whether or not crisis is going to come, because Jesus clearly says that in this world, we will have many troubles. But the question is, is what is our response in the midst of crisis? And more than that, how, how do we see people respond to us and how do we respond to them? And, and so I, I'm kind of wanting just to, in a sense, just kind of casually today just talk to you about what it looks like to, to handle crisis and what it looks like to, to do some things right and to, to, to not do some things. And, and my goal is, is just to kind of walk through that, okay? So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, about four to five verses here. And uh, Paul is writing to this church of Corinth. And uh, Paul is a guy who has had many circumstances of crisis in his life. So he's a guy who can speak into this type of thing. And I will just go on record and say that I'm not speaking into this because I handle crisis well or because I respond to crisis well. I am telling you today that the reason I'm giving you this message is because, number one, all of us are going to have crisis in our lives or around us, and our response does matter. But I want to tell you some of the helpful things that were good for me, but also some of the things that were not so good for me. Vice versa, I want to share some of the ways that I think I've responded well to crisis and then some other ways where I haven't. And so I hope that we can learn from that and may God use it for his glory and hopefully our church is good. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, let's start in verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort 
Now, he's going to use this word in the Greek, parakleo, which is the word comfort there. The idea of someone who is by your side, who doesn't leave you. It's the idea that you would hear when Jesus says, I'll never leave nor forsake you. The writer of Hebrews says that. God said that to many of the Old Testament greats. You're going to see it's the idea of one that we can cast our cares upon the Lord when we're weary, heavy laden, that he will give us rest. And so that's the idea here, the idea of parakleo. Now, what Paul writes is this. He goes, God the Father, he's the Lord of mercies. He's the Lord of comfort. He comforts us. And then in verse 4, he's going to say, in our afflictions. So you would go, okay, awesome. God, our Father, comforts us in afflictions. But listen, God is also consistent with the rest of the Trinity. So it's not just the Father that comforts us in affliction and Jesus died on the cross for us and the Holy Spirit lives in us. No, they're all consistently working together for those that love him. Matter of fact, in um, the Son, he, he exemplifies this idea of a paracleo or paraclete in uh, 1 John 2.1, Hebrews 2.18, Luke 2.25. The Spirit does the same thing in John chapter 14, verse 16. John chapter 14, verse 26, John chapter 15, verse 26, John chapter 16, verse 7. So you see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all are our comforters. They, they, they are with us. It's the idea of this. Oftentimes, we think comfort is always best when, when God leads us towards green pastures and still waters. But that's not when we experience the great comfort all the time, is it? It's idea of comfort oftentimes is Psalm 23. And I will be with you, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What? You shall fear no evil, for my rod and my staff, what? Bring comfort. And so you see that this is a consistent nature of God. He desires to comfort us in our afflictions. And so here's the question. Are we going to have afflictions? Yes. Are we going to have times of crisis? Yes. Now, real quickly, let me define the two. An affliction can be seen in lots of different ways. An affliction or a crisis can be experienced through natural disaster. It could be ex- uh, experienced through death, the loss of a job. It could be experienced in, um, in, in some sort of diagnosis. There's so many different things. It could be in a friendship. It could be in a hateful word. It could be in a persecution towards you or someone you love. There's a variety of things that, that ultimately stem and create this idea of crisis. Now, sometimes we confuse the two. We think that sin is suffering. So we think, oh, God, I'm suffering because of this. You're letting this happen. But sometimes it's our sin that creates the suffering. You understand? So sometimes we go, oh, woe is me. God, how would you allow us to do that? But we have not walked according to the decrees, the statutes, the commands of God. And so if you're suffering as a result of your foolish sin, then that's not suffering. That's consequences of sin. But sometimes your consequences of sin can cause someone else to suffer. Let me give you an example of that. 9-11, that's a classic case. You have men who hijack planes, uh, drive or fly them into towers. Thousands and thousands of lives are affected because of the result of suffering. There are men on that plane because of their sin, they lose their lives and they suffer loss. That's because of their sin, a consequence, yet other lives are affected because of sin and suffering. Understand? So we oftentimes suffer as a result of the hands of sinful men. But we also suffer for a variety of reasons that you and I can't understand. Although, here's what we should know. We should know that suffering is going to be consistent with all people in a variety of ways and means that you and I can't always understand or always seek to know what God is doing in a way that makes sense to us. 
But the bottom line is, is that in the midst of our suffering, we should know that God is the comforter of all people. Through the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, he is with us, regardless if you are enjoying green pastures, still waters, or you're walking through the valley of shadow of death. God never leaves nor forsakes those he loves. Understand? But the question then becomes, well, okay, how does God deal with us in the midst of crisis? And here's what I want you to understand. Obviously, he does it through the person and the work of the deity of God. He does it through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but he also does it in two other means, three really other means that you and I oftentimes miss. One of them is through his word. That's why we have the word. It's a constant guide for us and how we live our lives. The second one is the means that we oftentimes miss the most, and that is through his people through you and I and our response to crisis. And the third one, obviously, is the Holy Spirit, that work, the helper, the comforter of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so here's the deal. You got God's word, you got the Holy Spirit, but what about you and I? How do we respond and what do we learn from our crisis? Look at verse four. Here it is. Who comforts us in our affliction, speaking of God, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that which we ourselves are comforted by God. So meaning, God wants to take our, our, our crisis and he wants us to what? Display comfort to other people because of what we've experienced. And so you would think, okay, Brandon, you ought to be really good at bringing comfort to people because you've gone through so much crisis. The problem is, is this. I don't think I even realized all the crisis that I had been in. Do you understand? And so oftentimes we miss the crisis that's going on in our own life and we fail to see what God wants to teach us in the midst of that crisis on how we can be a blessing to other people who are going through crisis. And so here's what I want you to hear. This is kind of a tweetable moment. I gave it to my wife last night, and she stared at me with a long blank. And so if you stare at me with a long blank, I'm going to assume it's because I'm way more intelligent than you, okay? <laughs> the way that someone responds to crisis reveals more about their experience in crisis. Think about this. The way that someone responds to crisis reveals more about their experience in crisis. Think about that. There it is. That's it. See, it's probably my lack of being able to communicate efficiently, but here it is. The way that someone responds to crisis reveals to other people their response in crisis and what, what's happened in their experience. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every single person in here who's experienced crisis will handle crisis well. What I am saying is that oftentimes you and I will give what's been demonstrated to us in crisis. And so if you and I respond well in crisis, it's because someone responded to us well in crisis. If we don't respond well in crisis, it's because of one of three reasons. One is because no one responded to us well in crisis. Two, because we've never had crisis. Or three, because we don't believe God was present in the midst of our crisis. Do you understand? So if we don't respond well to crisis, it means that we've never had crisis. Number two, we don't think that people display well to us the comfort in the midst of our crisis. Or number three, we would just say God didn't exist in our crisis. So what I am saying is, is if God is a comforter, and he uses his people to comfort those in crisis, if we've experienced crisis and people responded well by the comfort of God through their display and actions, then guess what? We know what it's like to be comforted by God and others. Therefore, we're going to continue to what? Care for other people because of our own crisis. Y'all got that? So the bottom line is your ability to respond in crisis has a lot to do with how people responded to you in crisis. There's the point. 
And so if you stink at handling the response to crisis, it's because you've either not had crisis or because you've never shown what it looks like to be comforted in the midst of your crisis. Let me give you this example. This week, uh, I got a call. Matter of fact, it was on Friday. He said, Brandon, um, it, it was Pastor Archie. He, he was going to talk you know, to me just a little bit. He goes, I want to share something that was shared in Journey Group last night. I think it will be perfect for your message this weekend. I said, well, go ahead, sh- share it with me, man. And uh, he said, I was talking to a guy in Journey Group. They live out in the Edgewood area. And uh, he said he shared just with vulnerability that he was about to move his family back to the Dallas area, that commuting was getting too tough, that they thought it would be a good idea to move out here and, you know, ultimately, ha- you know, kind of settle down out here. But now he's kind of second-guessing his decision. And he shared with our group that he was going to move back, although he had not told us this recently at all. But he said then he saw the response from our church in the midst of a crisis this last weekend. And he was on the ground in Fruitvale where they live, and he said, and we, we got to, he got to see that response in crisis. And he said, and God spoke to me in that moment. I'm exactly where I need to be. And what alters this man's life, ultimately where him and his wife will set up and retire, was our response in crisis. So do you see why it's so monumental that you and I would respond well in crisis? Is because it shapes people's future and oftentimes can even help shape their eternity. And so our response is not minimal. It should be maximized for God's glory. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in the comfort too. And so oftentimes we, we suffer in the midst of uh, trials and tribulations. Paul was the chief of, of sufferers. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, just 10 more chapters over, he says, I was afflicted by, I was beaten, I, I've been in prison, I've been stoned, I've been shipwrecked, I've uh, had the perils of water, robbers. He goes, I know what it's like to have the perils of my own countrymen, the perils of Gentiles, the perils of the city, perils in the wilderness, the perils of the sea, perils among false brothers. I've, I've experienced weariness and toil. I've experienced sleeplessness often. I've had hunger. I've had thirst. I've had famine. I've had nakedness. I've been well clothed. You see all that? He goes, I know what it's like to suffer. And what Paul writes here in the earlier part, he goes, and just as we identify with Christ's sufferings, how much greater is it to share abundantly in the comfort of God too? You understand? So what does that mean? It means that in our sufferings, God has a lot to teach us. Paul goes, you can complain about your suffering and your crisis, or you can settle in and look to see where God wants to work in the midst of it. And that's what Paul chooses to do. He, verse 6, he says, if we are afflicted, and, and I would only correction I would make, and I wouldn't make one, but he goes, when we are afflicted, because it is going to happen. So he goes, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Paul goes, I am pleased to suffer so that other men and women see the glory of God in my life. And so I look back over the last literally 12 or 13 years of my life, and if God could use any single one of those instances to bring other people closer to God through my stability or through my ability to look to God in the midst of bad circumstances, then praise God, bring on more bad circumstances is what Paul would say. Make sure you heard that. That was what Paul would say, right? But we oftentimes, we pray, God, just use me any way you want. And what we mean by that is, God, use me to go on some mission trip and affect a lot of lives. But we don't mean, God, use me in the midst of my affliction so that other people would see me suffer well. 
And one of the greatest tragedies of the church is we're always praying for people's healing. We're never praying for their response in crisis. We always want our grandmother to be healed, don't we? But when's the last time we just prayed for grandma to suffer well for the cause of Christ that other people would see God's salvation and that other people would see grandma's strength in the midst of difficult times? And so my prayer is that we would see that Christ is an opportunity. Uh, I, the theologian uh, Trapp, he says this, As the hotter the day, the greater the dew at night. So the hotter the time of trouble, the greater the dews are refreshing from God. Sometimes in the midst of our difficult times, that's the best time for God to reveal himself through the way we respond in crisis. And then verse 7 says, And our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. God will not leave us nor forsake us. Why? Because Jesus says it best this way in John chapter 16, verse 30, uh, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. But hey, what? Be of good cheer or take heart. Why? For I have what? Overcome the world. And so we know that Christ is an opportunity. And so as Christ is an opportunity, what are four things we should do and two things we shouldn't? Well, here's number one. You ready? Number one thing you should do is just be present. You should be present. Be available. Be ready to show up. And when you show up, you should just be ready to do whatever it is that you need to do. Here's the, tr the challenge right now. If, if there was someone that you loved that had a major crisis in your life, the reason that most of us can't show up are for two or three reasons. Number one is because you don't have enough margin in your life to show up. You can't miss a day of work because you can't miss a payment. And if you miss a payment, then you're going to have your own crisis. But the deal is, is as Americans, we don't create enough margin in our life. There's always something else for us to do, always somewhere else for us to be. So if there is a major crisis in our life or in a friend's life or a loved one's life, oftentimes everyone else gets to respond in their time of need and we have to go to work. Or we have something else to do. And so one of the greatest things to allow you to be present in someone's life for you to be able to just show up is that you would have margin in your life, that you would be able to have that time. The second thing is that you would begin to overcome some of your insecurities. The reason that many of us don't show up is not because we don't have the margin, because we could, in fact, miss a few days of work, and we could, in fact, do that, but we don't want to because we're insecure, and we're afraid that we're going to show up and not have solutions. But what's interesting is, is that in a person's time of need, they don't need solutions. They just need people to show up. And I think that oftentimes is where we as the church have missed it, missed it in, a, in a major way. Think about it. Last week, we had hundreds and thousands of people affected. The, the recent survey just taken this last week uh, by the state of Texas is about 5,000 plus homes were affected by the recent storms. 5,000 plus homes affected, and they didn't need you to show up and have solutions. People were overwhelmed simply because you showed up. And it's the same of any crisis, whether it be a tornado event, whether it be a death, whether it be a diagnosis. They just need you to show up and just sit and be there and to listen and to be available and to be present. And as you're, as you're present, you're there, then you can look for things to do. Be active. So what do I mean? Well, when there's a diagnosis, then figure out a way to look for short-term and long-term needs. What's a short-term need? Man, it would be helpful if I mowed their grass. Well, they didn't ask me to mow the grass. I would hate to, you know, to come out, step on their toes. Listen, they're not going to ask you to mow the grass. 
They're not going to ask you to do a load of laundry. And I know that you and I oftentimes in our time of crisis or in our time of response to crisis, we'd love for someone to, to, to really make it clear for us and say, hey, will you please do a load of laundry for me? But listen, they're not going to do that. Why? Because in the process of a crisis, they're going through the stages of grief. And the very first stage of grief is shock and denial. Regardless of what it is, whether they lost their house, whether it is a diagnosis, whether it's a death recently, the bottom line is they're in shock. And they don't know that they need their grass mowed. They don't know that they've got dishes that could be washed. They don't know that they have a child that's got to be dropped off at school the next couple of days, and they have no plan or solution for it. Because life does not stop in the midst of crisis, but we can find ways to help life go on by being present, just showing up. No solutions, just being present. And as we're being present, then guess what? We should be patient. Be patient. Because here's what happens in the midst of crisis. We want crisis, we want crisis to be kind of done. Understand? So here's, here's how it is. The first two or three days in crisis oftentimes will show up. Got me? Think about it. Think about tornado relief efforts. Two, three days in, everybody wants to volunteer. Two, three weeks in, nobody's there. Our natural response can be to be present, but we forget the patient part. The the patient part is simply this. Being patient means that the response to a crisis is not going to go on your timeline, ever. And it's not going to be the way that you would oftentimes respond or do it. So you and I have to be patient. Be patient with people as they grieve, as they go through their own process through their crisis. Be patient in your response. Don't be pushy. Don't be arrogant. Just listen be present, be available, be patient. I can't think of someone more patient than the God of the Bible. He was patient with his people in their sin. He's been patient with the people uh, and, and even us and our obstinance. But even then, he also gives us the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. So be patient with people. Number three, be prayerful. Be prayerful. When you don't have words to say, you can pray. And you go, I don't really know how to pray. Well, I'll tell you this. If you'll just take God's word and begin to look for comfort, just pray the words of the Bible. When you don't have your own prayer, pray a prayer that's already been prayed before. Understand? It's the idea of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. What if you just pray that over someone? God, we know that every word that you say proves to be true. But God, you also say, that you will, you will be with those who take refu- refuge in you. And so, God, we just take refuge in you today. God, we don't have all the answers, but, Lord, you do tell us in your word that you cast up and you bind the brokenhearted. God, you do tell us in your word that you'll never leave nor forsake us. God, you do tell us that, that we can cast all of our cares upon you and that you'll give us rest. God, I don't have much more to offer than that, but I'm going to ask that you would be God and I would just be available. And let's let God be God and let us just do being the hands and feet of Jesus. And so how do we do that? We we start by being present. The second, we're being patient. And then we're being prayerful. And then here's the deal. I want you to be persistent. Now, real quickly, you're like, that's an oxymoron. How do you want me to be patient and persistent? Well, I want you to be persistently patient, okay? So in the midst of someone's grieving time, I want you to know that that could take a long time. So why is persistence needed? Persistence is needed because here's our response. What can I do for you now? And then we forget what we can do later. And this is perhaps where I'm the biggest bonehead there is. 
in a day and age where technology right before our hands and a guy like me who sets an alarm for everything. I have five alarms to wake up. I have four alarms for every meeting I have, and I don't ever miss a meeting. Why? Because I have alarms starting to go off 24 hours in advance. And if you schedule a meeting with me, it is the most impeccable thing that I have it on my phone, in, in scheduled in my calendar with many alarms. Okay? Not because I'm forgetful, but because I'm busy. And you're busy. But what would it look like if in our persistence we set an alarm about major anniversaries of people affected around us? What if in those moments we wrote them a card of encouragement with a brief prayer about how God can comfort you in your affliction? What if we were, were just reminding them that we haven't forgotten? And that's why we have to be persistent. As we wait for people to grieve, knowing that grieving never ends, we realize that we're not going to forget about people. And I think oftentimes that happens. And I think that's one of probably the biggest detriments of, of us in pastoring or shepherding or whatever it is, because you're pastors and shepherds too in your own context. Oftentimes we miss opportunities to shepherd simply because we forget and we get too busy. And so find ways to be persistent. Got me? So you got the things that you should do. Let me do you two things real quick that you shouldn't do, okay? So you, here, here it is. You ready? You all re- ready? Yes? Okay, just making sure that y'all are are not missing my opportunity to teach you something, okay? So here you go. Show up by what? Being present. Be patient. Be prayerful. And be persistent. Resist the need to be profound. When you show up and you're present, oftentimes you think, I've got a great word to be profound. And so you say something foolish, And so you might say something like this. Hey, God will never give you more than you can handle. Really? Because right now it feels like he's giving me way more than I can handle. And then you'll go, no, 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 baby. It says that in God's word. And then you'll say, and and just no, God will never give you, you know, a, a battle that you can't handle because he gives the toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. Nothing biblical about either of those responses. Matter of fact, I am a firm believer that God will give you way more than you can handle so that you look to the one who can handle it all. But it's oftentimes in those moments where Christians, like our clever clever t-shirts, we come up with these cute little cliches that we think are going to be helpful, and they're not helpful at all. Matter of fact, if I could just say it in a way that you could tweet it out for everybody to understand today, the key to crisis is to show up and to shut up. I'm, I'm, that is it. Show up and shut up. Why? Because when we, when we think we need to be profound and we don't resist it, then we go from being profound to making parallels. And you need to resist the desire to make parallels. So here's the parallels. Hey, I understand what you're going through. See, here's the deal. I have lost a best friend, but I've never lost a brother. I have lost a best friend, but I've never lost my dad. I have... I have been on the brink of losing my dad, but I celebrate the life I've had, and I don't understand what you're going through. And so it would be foolish for me to presume that I know what it's like to lose your dad. I know what it's like to have a dad that had a brain injury and God to miraculously overcome and for us to experience healing and life and revitalization there. But listen, that is nothing like your grandmother getting diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. That's nothing like your 4-year-old having leukemia. And so what can we offer to people? We can be present. 
And we can give comfort because we have experienced comfort in our own times of sadness and hurt and crisis and tragedy. Not trying to make parallels or trying to say some clever cliche that somehow makes them feel better. Why? Because there's no word that you have will make them feel better other than the word of God that stands true forever. And so that's why I stick to just the scriptures. I have lost my house in a fire but I've never lost it in a flood or a tornado. I've never gathered my belongings in one single Rubbermaid tote. And so it would be foolish for me to presume that I understand what families are going through in Van Zandt County right now. But what I can give them is availability. And my prayer is, is this for our church in the midst of crisis is that our response would be consistent regardless of who the person is or what the crisis is. And the reason why is because one crisis is not bigger than the other in a person's life. In their life, a perceived crisis is a crisis. And if we would simply be present, be prayerful, be patient, and be persistent, resist the idea to be profound or to draw parallels, we will be extremely helpful to many people. And so you may go, well, okay, that works. Now, what do I do from here? Well, here's how it works, okay? You start by showing up, and then you start by show, just shutting up. So look for things to do. Find ways that you can practically help. If you are an elderly person here, you go, I, I can't get out and move trees. Well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can pick up a prescription. Understand? You can drop a kid off at school. You can call an insurance company and battle them out because parents don't want to do it. There are so many practical ways for us to be available, to be present. And my prayer is that we would do that. But my biggest prayer is this. I pray that we would not do what the classic Christian does, and that is fail to be persistent. So here's what my response is to the crisis of the tornado events. Here's what it is. You ready? We're going to be proactively persistent. We're not going to forget the, the families that we have talked to last weekend because now we're a weekend of this. Because listen, just because you don't drive down their streets and just because you don't live in their neighborhood doesn't mean that the crisis is still not real for them. And so how do we remind ourselves? Listen, remind yourself of the crisis in your life and people's response there, thereof, and then more than that, drive down their streets. Don't look for someone else to accomplish what God has created you to accomplish. And so if you think that our pastors and shepherds here at Stone Point are going to gather all the people and find five families that are going through crisis and we're going to solve all their problems, you're wrong. And the reason why is because God has uniquely allowed me to invest in about three to five families right now that I met over the last week. And that's where I'm going to go to serving. But that's not where you should go to serving. You should go to serving and the people that you've met. And if you haven't met people, then get out and meet someone. Why? Because that's when the church is the church. It's when people organically begin to disciple and meet needs in their context as opposed to waiting for someone else to create the meaningful relationship for them. And that's where the tragedy has happened throughout the local church. If you are waiting for pastors to come up with solutions for you to serve, then I think we're probably doing church the wrong way. Because if you don't have enough relationships and context and where you can serve and where we can help partner with you in that, then we're missing the point. You understand? 
And so if you were to say, Brandon, I know a family right now, and my family is partnering with them, but I'll tell you, there's some trees down, and, and if you've seen my husband, he doesn't run a chainsaw well. I would go, well, I would be delighted to send 10 men with chainsaws. And by, that, by, by the way, I've got a guy, man, he's got, he's got a dozer. He'd love to come out there if, that's a, if that would help. No, 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 we don't need that. A skid steer with, with grapple hooks? Oh, yeah, we've got two of those. We'll send one out your way. We'd love to partner in that. But the deal is this. You know where crisis is, and you should know how to respond. And the biggest way that you can say love is availability. And so go be available. The hands and feet of Jesus. And then may I just make one more confession. If we have responded poorly in your time of crisis, I ask that you would humbly forgive us because we want to respond well. And there are some times I'll look back and I'm a bonehead and I don't always respond well. And So would you help us to respond well? Would you tell us some practical ways that we can help you to respond well? Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for today. We pray, God, that you would use this in a way that would be helpful to your people. And uh, God, I thank you, Father, for the response of Job's uh, friends in Job chapter 2. Um, oftentimes, God, we know that Job's friends get a really bad rap because they, they, they said a lot of foolish, hurtful things. They blamed all of his circumstances on his sin. But Lord, if we were to look at that story, we see in Job chapter 2 that they initially they were present. They showed up in the midst of... Job's suffering. And when they first saw Job, God, we remember just reading about how they began to empathize. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. Lord, they empathized with him. And then they were there. And for seven days, they just sat by Job and they remained silent. And But God, we give them a bad rap because on that eighth day, they opened their mouth. And they tried to explain you away. And God, I pray that we would not try to explain you God, that we would not try to blame circumstances or tragedies on you. God, that we wouldn't try to take you off the hook for things that you are involved in. But I pray, God, that we would just simply know that we should bring comfort because you are the great comforter. And I pray, God, that we would use the opportunity to be available to people, to be present in their life, to patiently wait on them without the need to say something profound so that we will show them the evidence of God. And God, I just pray right now for the people affected in many ways, for families in here that are dealing through crisis of a loved one, through a recent diagnosis, or through families that are affected in our county or even in our church that are affected by storms. God, would you help us as the church to respond well to crisis? God, would you help us to see needs and to meet them? And I pray, God, we would do it for your glory and not for our own namesake. I pray, God, it wouldn't be to make our church famous or to somehow get a name out there for ourselves. It would simply be to show other people who you are. We love you and we thank you.